Hello, hello. This is Rachel Tachberg, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the VetMed Mind. Today, we are chatting with Dr. Nicole Bruno. She is the CEO and founder of BlendVet, which is a veterinary hospital certification program in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And she was just so much fun talking to. She has such great energy, and it was really great to hear about her upbringing and her story and how she came into VetMed, some of the struggles that she faced, and ultimately what led her to develop developing BlendVet. And now it's being launched across the U.S. And I'm just so excited for all of you to hear about it. And she just does such a great job of painting the picture of why this is so necessary in vet med. And I know we all need more training in these areas. DEIB has become such a need for us to learn more about, to implement in our practices. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Nicole Bruno. And thank you again for listening to The Vet Med Mind. Welcome everyone. It's Rachel Teachberg, and I am so excited to have here today, Dr. Nicole Bruno. She is the CEO and founder of Blend, which we will get into all the details of later. Uh, but I just am so excited to have you here. I know you're a very busy woman. So thank you for being here. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yes. And so Dr. Bruno, you're an entrepreneur. You have, well, you've, you've had and still do have a career in vet medicine as a practicing doctor. And so I wanted to first start and kind of go back in time and just hear a little bit about where you started. You know, I love asking people when they first knew they wanted to be a vet. I know like that's always like a, a moment for a lot of people. So let's just start there. What, what called you to vet med? I don't know if I have like that exact moment. I remember just telling my mom, just matter of fact, like I want to be a vet. And I think that was, so that was at the age of 12. I think that came from wanting to be a doctor, but wasn't sure of what my older cousin was actually going to school to be a pediatrician. And I thought about that, but I grew up in an apartment complex and we weren't allowed to have pets. And we had to wait for a parking spot. And many a nights I would be sitting in the car with my mom or dad and I would see these stray animals in the neighborhood. And I would just get so upset, especially like during the winter months because I grew up in New York City and, you know, winters can be harsh and I just wanted to take care of them. I wanted to bring them in and my mom would be like, we cannot. And so she would allow me to take my allowance and I would go to the bodega, which is the corner store. And I would buy like, you know, cat food, dog food. And when we parked our car, I would feed these animals and then they would like have a little parade following me back to our building, like the back door. And I would always just get so upset because I knew I couldn't bring them in. And, you know, I think that just really started the fire in me of saying I wanted to be a vet. And then a couple of years later, my younger sister said, I want to be a vet too. And so it's became this family thing that we both wanted to pursue this career. And I was the older sister. We're six years apart. So obviously, like I was the trailblazer, you know, and kind of finding out what opportunities there were. I was very grateful because my mom, you know, was a teacher and she knew how much exposure mattered, but also representation. And we started to quickly see that even though I grew up in a diverse city, I did not see that in veterinary medicine. So through family, friends, she found two men that had attended Tuskegee that practiced in Yonkers, New York, which is outside of New York City. And she drove me up there one Saturday and I had my first exposure and I saw surgery and vaccine appointments. And I left there saying, I want to be a vet. And those 
you know, years after 12 to, you know, ultimately college, I didn't really feel attached to the profession. Like I, I liked when I did shadowing opportunities, but it never felt mentored by the veterinarians that I worked there, worked with. Um, I was the only person of color in that hospital. I was the youngest and it just didn't feel like I had that guidance. And my mom and my village, my godmother, they really stepped in and would give my me, you know, reading literature. I remember being a subscriber to the Cornell Feline Health Center. So I would get these monthly magazines that my godmother paid for, like my village really kind of kept and fostered that love. And ultimately I went to Tuskegee and that is really what made me say, okay, I can do this because I can see myself in this role and I have friends around me and we all want to be veterinarians and we're going to do this together. And so I think that community in vet school, you know, and the belonging and the, the representation is really what sealed it for me. And that's when I, the rest is history after that. I, just really love hearing how supportive your family was and probably still is of all the things that you're doing, because I do find a lot, you know, the one thing that everyone seems to know about veterinary medicine is how hard it is. And I hear that a lot when, especially when I was still working in practice and somebody would introduce me to their kid, right? And they'd be like, oh, you know, Rachel works in vet med. And of course their kid would be like, I want to be a vet. And immediately the parent will say something like, well, you have to work really hard and get straight A's and sure, (laughs) but like, you know, it's more often, it just, it sounds like this big overbearing kind of, you know, hardship, right. Of like, you know, be prepared to fail. And it's really wonderful that you had a family that was willing to kind of like go out and find the resources and the tools and the people and the magazine subscriptions and all that kind of stuff to really you know, push you forward and not necessarily get stuck in the challenges that, you know, exist in our industry as well as any other field, right? To to move forward through a tough educational process specifically. But um, it just makes me happy to know that you had such a supportive family and that your sister is in it with you. <laughs> I know, I know. That's, I think, the the craziest part. But I think that when I think back on my story and now what I'm doing now, it really makes sense that I've been a forever mentor in veterinary medicine. Um, I've had my younger sister since day one. And although she has a very different path in vet med, I, and I tell children that like, you can be so many things in veterinary medicine. So don't just think that DVM is the end, you know, it's like, there's the beginning of another life. So, you know, I, I, I love that we have each other, but I, I love that. I also have another network of friends and that are in this career with me that we are just each other's support yeah. as well. Yeah. That's awesome. And so I want to ask now, you know, you kind of talked about vet school and what was like that that was like for you. Um, and you kind of found this belongingness, right, at Tuskegee and you found your people in vet med. So what was it like then when you went back into practice? You know, you had said that you didn't necessarily see a lot of people of color represented in in the vet practices in New York. And so now you're on the other side, you made it through vet school, you're gonna go into the working environment. What was that transition like? And and were there things that surprised you for better or for worse? What was that experience like? So it was it was hard. I and I just want to back up because I actually stopped at Tuskegee, but realizing I went to vet school at Cornell. So I had two different veterinary 
school-like experiences because at Tuskegee, even though I was undergrad, the vet school was right across the street. And so I had that interaction and that support. And I was in the pre-vet club. I wanted to stay at Tuskegee, but I applied to Cornell as a New York state resident and I got accepted. And I had that moment of like, I don't know if I want to do this because I don't want to be back to being a minority. Like I, I love the support of Tuskegee, but I, it was a lot of personal things happening in my life. Also, I applied during 9-11 and vets to vet school. So it kind of was shifting me to go coming home, coming closer to home. So I came home and I had four years of an amazing vet school experience at Cornell. So like after having eight years of being in two different institutions in the vet space, that showed me that I could belong, whether I was the majority or the minority, I went back into private practice world and I did an internship my first year and then stayed in private practice in New York for 11, well, 10 plus years after that. And I did not see myself again in as a doctor now. Now I'm a doctor and I still didn't see myself as a doctor in the hospitals I was working at. And then even the support staff, it was very far and few in between. There was times where I was the only person, doctor and staff, of color in the hospital. And I always felt like whenever clients of color came in, I had to really try work harder, like to help them, you know, that there wasn't things in place that should have been within the hospital setting, like just simple things. Like if there's a language barrier, how do we get past that? What do we put, what, what systems do we have in place? What, how can we make this appointment easier, not only for us, but for the, for our clients? How can we ensure that they're properly educated you know, I'm biracial. My father's Colombian. So I grew up with my grandparents, you know, speaking Spanish to a certain extent, because after a while I started just speaking more English to them. And so I am great at Spanglish, you know, now. But, you know, I remember being a child translating for my grandparents when we would go to Sears to buy a washing machine or something. And that was so hard for me. Like I barely understood what the people were talking about in Sears then to have to translate that. And I do not like doing that for our clients. I don't like to have to put that weight and burden on the child to explain to their parents sometimes very serious things, like sometimes euthanasia, sometimes very much, you know, bad prognoses, like we should be doing better. And these were the things that I was seeing because I was practicing in New York City where there's a heavy Latino population. And I just felt like we were missing the mark that we wouldn't have properly recruited people that could help us as, you know, client service representatives, assistants, technicians to help fill that gap. And when I was in private practice and I was just the associate, there was only so much I could do. I could do what I could in my exam room, but to create, you know, an impact, it was harder. Mm -hmm. When I finally went into leadership, it became better yeah. because I could control it. Yeah. And you brought up a, a, such an important point. You know, we talk about DEIB and um, I think a lot of people think of it in terms of this concept as practice, right? The people that work for us, how we maybe recruit, retain programs that are in place, but clients are equally a part of that, right? It's it's our environment. It's the the everything that's inside of our practice is a component of that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And, you know, in your example of a client who doesn't speak the language and is trying to even just get the basics of what's happening, right? 
how is that belonging, right? How is that feeling like this is a place for me and this is a place that I feel comfortable and confident with the care my pet's getting? So now that you were in leadership, what was what was opening for you at, at this point? And was was the DEIB initiative like one of the main goals at that point of your career to like that you've recognized this gap and you're like, now I'm in a place I can do something about it. And is that where you sort of started all, everything? <laughs> I I laugh because, you know, there is no leadership class that we have in vet school, you know, so we're really learning on the fly. And when I think back, because now that I speak on leadership, I'm like, you know, people should have a plan in place. And I had no plan. I didn't even know what I was doing. All I knew is that I wanted to create an environment where I felt comfortable, like I wanted to be me again. Like I wanted to listen to the music that I like to listen to during practice. I wanted to joke around the way I joke around. You know, I've always thrived on, you know, being in a happy culture. And sometimes that would come across to others as not taking her job seriously, you know? And I felt like I was always having to prove that, no, I think you can have both. I think you can work hard and play harder and you should be having fun at work. And the thing that I was able to do as an associate vet is I started like the fun committee at the hospital I was at, you know, because I'm like, we work together. We spend so much time together. Why shouldn't we be bonding together? And it was my way to try to be that change, right? But when I could control the environment, then I knew that I just wanted to hire people that would allow me to be me, that I could also make sure that they could engage with the community that we were serving because I looked at the community. I'm like, this particular hospital is like in three different neighboring communities that have different clientele, different needs, and we need to meet them where they are. And we were right across from a train station. And so it was something that we were very visible for anybody to remember that we were there. So I made sure that I hired people that spoke Spanish and I didn't necessarily care that they never worked in a vet hospital before. I'm like, I can train you how to spell Rimadil. I can train you, you know, how to make an appointment, but I can't train you to answer the phone. And when that client answers hola, that you can just immediately switch into the language and help navigate their experience um, into our hospital. And so to me, that was a priority. And then I made sure that whoever else that I hired that, you know, were licensed technicians or my veterinary assistants, that they were willing to mentor and help train the people that may not have had the skill, but that those people would be able to provide a skill that they didn't have, which was the language, right? And that, I loved it. That's when I fell back in love with Vet Med again. That's when the burnout kind of went away. That's when I said, I'm back to mentoring again. At that point, my sister was in college. Actually, no, she was in vet school at that time. And so it was easier to pour into her again, you know, because I was happy. But I decided to move to Texas and I did the same thing because I walked into a hospital once again in a changing demographic of Houston to a very white practice. I was the only person of color and I ended up changing again the demographics of our of our hospital and literally the pandemic kind of happened at that point. And that changed everything. Yeah. That just added the extra le- level of taking it up a notch in leadership skills, because that was a very, very traumatic time for all of us. Um, and in InventMed specifically, it was really, I, I never want to have to go through that again. Yeah. Oh, I hope we do not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you know, it's like, it really let us know how unprepared in so many ways. Totally. And, you know, I think that if anything, if we can develop what 
we can be better prepared for something like that in the future than, you know, at least we're ahead of what we were before. And I want to ask, obviously burnout comes up a ton, you know, in our industry. And I, what I think is just interesting to hear, you know, we think about burnout and sometimes people just think about the workload, but, you know, fitting into an environment that doesn't feel right. Right. It's like putting on clothes that don't fit. Right. And it's uncomfortable. So you kind of alluded to the fact that the environment that you were in, not, not necessarily any, not that there wasn't, but not necessarily the toxicity or the workload was contributing to your, to your burnout. It was also, Like, how would you describe that? Is that kind of what it was like for you? It was just like, it didn't feel comfortable and that created an emotional drain. It was, I think it was two parts. I think one part was the fact that I did not feel supported, like to bring up things that were happening to me. Like I had situations where there were, where I witnessed microaggressions or people said comments to me that were inappropriate. Um, And you have to decide, is that worth bringing up? Is it worth making it a thing, you know, or just focusing on the medicine and getting through the day, you know, and some days were harder than others. There were times where I had it big, bold in my face from a client where they would not want me to do their pet surgery. You know, and that happened, I can at least say that only happened once in my career where I felt that blatant, you know, and I didn't even know what it was at the end of the day. Could it be my gender? Could it be my race? Could it be my um, age? You know, because at that time I was early on in my career, I looked younger, you know, but either way there, these weren't things that I I could share and, and talk it out with anybody that looked like me that could say, you know what, it's okay, but let's, you know, let's talk about what you did do well at. Right. I didn't have that. My boss was just like, he's just chauvinistic, like, you know, and, and as if to brush it off. And it's really hard when you're underrepresented to just brush things off like that, you know, because there's so many other things that you're thinking about. Am I not good enough? Does he not see me as the doctor, you know, um, what else could I have done better? You know, it's just like you doubt yourself. And especially when you don't have the confidence as an early clinician coupled with those components, it can lead to burnout even faster. I always felt like myself the most when I was in rooms with clients that I developed relationships with, you know, that I would have people all the time that when they saw that I was a person of color, they only wanted to see me. They only wanted their children to come in and shadow with me because they wanted their children to see that representation. But I wanted to make sure that I could meet that level of happiness towards them. Like, say, this is a great profession. But when I hit that point in my career where it was just like constantly trying to prove myself, constantly not being able to seek that support because there was no mentor that I could look to. I was burning out and I was like, I'm not going to be good for the community. Like I'm not, I can't engage with students and tell them to be happy and join it when I'm not happy. Absolutely. So it was, it was a combination of, you know, of both. And I think when we're, especially most veterinarians of color, I think we feel this, this, I don't want to call it a burden because to me, when I'm with those kids, I, you know, any kids, I, I don't feel like it's a burden. Like I, I love talking to students about our career but it is something that I feel we feel more of a responsibility to do than I see for other my other colleagues. Yeah. And speaking of that responsibility, you know, at at uh, at this point, you've started Blend. And remind me when you officially initiated the company. Like when when did Blend come into reality? 
So if the thought of Blen, and I, I keep saying Blen, and I need to start saying Blenvet because we are in the process of trade trademark. And but Blenvet initially came into my mind um, October of 2020, and it was because we were like in the heart of the pandemic, and that was when I was starting to really you know, decide like, I want to leave our profession better than when I found it. And it doesn't look that way. And it doesn't feel that way. And because of the social unrest, and then the burnout from just all of the pandemic stressors, I was like, this is, we're not in a good place, you know, and I was thinking about what could we do to make it better. And I started talking to veterinary students, um, just about DEI and my experiences. And their response was like, we need this in vet schools. Like this is such a great, like it, it puts definitions to things, to feelings that I have, or you've shared with me how I can navigate the next time I hear a microaggression in the treatment room. And I was like, this is training that we need universally, not just within private practices, but in the veterinary schools specifically, they're joining us, right? So we should all be learning the same what things. And I thought about, you know, how we have certification programs in place and they weren't there when I was in vet school, but they're here now and people look to them to recruit and to go as clients. And I said, we should have DEIB certified hospitals. And that's how Blendvet was born. I finally made it a company in 2021. And then last year, I finally decided to take a leap of faith and just exclusively give up my leadership title and really pursue being the CEO and founder of Blendvet. And now we are in a place where we are not only about to begin our first hospital cohort with um, Rare Breed Veterinary Partners, but we are also um, working with academic institutions, veterinary schools, training the faculty and their students. And we also are starting our pipeline events, which is very important to me because community has always been very important to me. So I'm really excited about what the last year has brought for Blend and Vet, Blend Vet. And I'm hopeful that we will just continue to be able to grow um, and really be the change that I think we need in our profession. Absolutely. And congratulations. It's really so exciting. And the work you're doing is phenomenal. So I want you to just kind of talk more about it. So what is Blend Vet? And, you know, if a practice, you know, were to sign up, like what kind of programming is, is it? And what kind of impact are you looking to have on each practice? Sure. That's very helpful. That's a good point. So pretty much um, what my goal was, was to offer hospitals a customized approach of DEIB. And so one of the things that we're doing is we've created a blend vet culture assessment. And so when hospitals say, I want to be blend vet certified, they will take a culture assessment and everyone in their hospital will take it. And then what we can identify from it is areas that that practice needs to be, you know, trained on more. And so at the end, I can say, you know, based on your hospital, these were some, you know, topics that we really need to focus in on within the DEI space to really move forward. And so we have a workshop and we will kind of talk with the leadership about the overall program, what the, the topics, the pain points were from the culture assessment and get that started. Then we will now introduce the staff to our modules, which is on an LMS, a learning management system. I felt that it was important to be able to let people learn this on their own time and pace. But I also felt it was very important to have discussions after we go through the modules because 
you and I could both read, look at something and interpret it very differently on our life experiences. And so I think it was a way to come together and talk about it with our teammates because we not only work alongside them, but we are very close with them. We know, we learn about them personally, but some things just seem to be more challenging to get through than others because that basic connection can sometimes be missing. And so DEI is very personal and we want to create a space of safety where our teams feel like they can have these conversations when current events happen. We can talk about it, even if it's not vet med focus, it's still affecting and impacting certain groups of people and our clients that are coming in. And what can we do to be a little bit more, you know, empathic towards them, right? And so our goal is to have our hospitals go through these modules with these discussion points together. And at the end of the program, after they've had a chance to really talk about it, do activities, they come up with what they want to do as a community service project. How are we going to give back to our community? And then what can we do internally in our hospital for our own community to really evolve in the DEI space? Some hospitals could do something as simple as changing our intake forms to pronouns, to partner, you know, um, those are the little things that people who are marginalized pick up on immediately, you know, and if you change that, they see that and they immediately feel this sense of belonging, even as our clients or saying to our staff, we are going to put our pronouns on our name tags and we are going to make when we introduce ourselves that we say, my name is Nicole Bruno, my pronouns are she, her you know, so that people feel comfortable sharing theirs, you know, but it's little things that we can do that really can change the metric of like how people feel. And so my hope is, is that I'm not basically telling hospitals what to do, but I'm giving them a framework of the values of blend, building relationships, leadership, education, and equity, navigating the unknown and diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Those blend vet values are what's going to help you create a blueprint that works best for your hospital. That's excellent. And that's what we're going to do. Yeah, I I know you will. And I'm excited to, <laughs> to see the impact that it's really going to have on our community because it just seems like uh, we have a lot of work to do in the space, you know, and, and we really yeah. we really need the fundamentals and the training. And, you know, there's not a lot that's made for us in our environment. And it's it's extra important for the information that's coming to us to come from someone and an organization that gets our environment and our space and our challenges. Exactly. Yes. And that's the thing. All of my speakers are people that are in the industry or very closely attached to the industry. And they we we use our lived experiences to really tie in the elements of DEIB. Like to hear the definition of a microaggression, but then hear the example in real life that it happened to this person based on this part of their identity, that resonates with people. And then understanding like how to counteract that in a treatment room when you have people that are putting in catheters and doing all these other things, when it happens, what can we do? Like the practicality of it. And those were things that when I would do training, I didn't get that part. And I'm like, if I'm a person of color and I'm struggling with what the next steps are, then clearly I need to to do to take it up a notch. And that's what was so important to me about BlendVet. So I am excited. Um, you know, I continue to meet people in this industry that just, you know, make me so hopeful that our profession is ready for this, you know, and I, I 
I'm really hopeful for what this year and and the years to come will bring for us. Absolutely. And uh, I know for people listening, they're probably like, oh my gosh, I need blend vet today. So what (laughs) is it? What does it look like? You know, what, where, where is blend vet right now? And what is, what is sort of the future look like where people who want this blend vet training, how do they get it? and, And what's that look like? So right now we are really focusing on trying to build our team so that we can accommodate this demand that we've had over the last two years. I've been going to conferences and and providing blend tracks so that people can get a taste of what we are offering and just speaking on leadership things outside of it with using the blend vet values. Um, So we have a list and what we're trying to do is create cohorts of potentially hospitals to do it together so that we're actually building a community together. Um, It's still that the hospitals would take their work individually, but for things like the workshops, we could have hospitals do it as a cohort. So we're hoping once we can get some um, of our staff trained to be able to handle those cohorts, then we can at least start to expand beyond rare breed. Um, But right now it's been a combination of also making sure that we are available for academic institutions too, because this work is so needed in for veterinary students as well. And now that we've have veterinary schools that have looked different in their clinical years, where they are actually going to veterinary hospitals to complete their clinical rotations, I think it's even more important for blend vet hospitals to exist and for veterinary students to know what they should be looking for in hospitals to be employed or to do their externship in. And what would be better if we had hospitals that were blend vet certified and veterinary students that specifically were able to get that experience from them. Like to me, it's a win-win. And, um, you know, and I'm just kind of hoping that we can be right where we can meet them right at the right sweet spot. So that's why we're trying to do both at the same time. I love that. And I want to also touch on the pipeline. So talk a little bit more about that and the recent event you guys had. So the pipeline event was something that came to my head um, in 2022 after attending the VMX conference then. VMX has always offered um, on MLK weekend and I've always done community service on MLK day. To me, it was a day on, not a day off. And so when I was realizing that I was stepping into the speaker circuit and that I was probably never going to be home on MLK day, I was like, what could I do where I'm at to bring this level of community service. And I started thinking about how underrepresented we were, how we needed diversity. And we were in a place where it had a huge exhibit hall, all of our colleagues access to be able to provide an event a day for students to come in and see what it was like to be a vet. And so I pitched the idea to NAVC and they were completely on board with it. And for six months, we, you know, contacted junior high schools in um, Orlando, like in underserved communities, so that we could invite the students to come and spend the day with us. And they came on MLK. We had about 24 students of all backgrounds. And they came in and we were able to put together a day of programming where they got to see what it was like to go to vet school, where they learned about different pathways in vet medicine. And then we did like a workshop where they rotated through different stations to expose them to emergency medicine, dermatology, general practice, and then surgery. And I leaned on my network of friends that are specialists in this 
you know, in this profession and are the unicorns usually of their profession. Like if you, you look at us as veterinarians in general practice and we're so underrepresented, but then you go into our specialists and they're even sometimes the only person in the entire college. And so I wanted students to see them as the representation, you know, of what we could do and how many opportunities we do have. And so it was really surreal seeing it come together. Like I teared up several times because it's what I would have wanted as a 12 year old. It was what I would have needed, you know, to like stay really on task if, you know, and because I had a mom that made sure I stayed on task. That's why I'm a vet. But there's other students that when they don't see and have programs like this, the next shiny profession that comes their way, they're going, you know, because they have nothing to hold on to from us. Yeah. It's so beautiful and so inspiring. It's just so great. And, you know, putting these events together aren't easy and they're just so rewarding. I'm like tearing up even just thinking about it because it's so like same thing, you know, like when you're a kid, you know, without somebody who was a cheerleader in my corner and, you know, all of this felt like a pipe dream, being able to go somewhere and see it in action and have people tell you this is possible for you is exciting. And um, it's everything. Like you said, hard, right? So then you lean on that village. I mean, sometimes I tell, you know, my colleagues now, like I mentor a lot of, you know, veterinarians, like my sister, not a new grad, you know, but we, I still mentor her. And now she's at a point in her career that she mentors me, you know, about things like we're here for each other, but, you know, I try to just tell them like, it's important to have that network in our community, but it's very important to have a network outside of our community. Cause there's just some things that other people outside of it can put into perspective for us. And, you know, and then vice versa, there's some things that we cannot share with the outside world that we need each other to do. Absolutely. So I just kind of say, find that you find your tribe on both sides. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I know you've leaned on your sister a lot and there's been a lot of influencers for your own career. Um, but if you had to pick somebody, you know, throughout your career or just your life in general, who's, who's been your inspiration? I think it's my mom. I mean, it's like, I'm trying not to get emotional, but even though she wasn't in our profession, I mean, she was like the epitome of what a parent, what an educator what anybody needs to do to make sure that their child is on the path to whatever they want. And like, now that I'm a mother, I just want to channel everything that she does. And I want my children to be proud of me, but I also feel like it's so important for me to leave the profession that I'm in better. They do want to be vets. They should not have half of what so many of us are still dealing with. So that is what I'm hoping for. And, you know, during times where I've pivoted or been in really low spots, it's my mother that's been like that. You've got this. You've trained for this. You, This is you. Do it. And it's like any leap that I've made, knowing she was like, I approve, was like everything. for me. Oh, So beautiful. So amazing. It's just wonderful to see just such a just such a lovely relationship, you know, to have that support, have that person in your life, that's your cheerleader. Um, there's nothing quite like that. Very cool. No, so we're going to move into rapid fire. So a few little quick questions as we wrap up. So um, let's get started with what was the name of your first pet? <laughs> 
So that's a story in itself. His name was Pretty Boy. Okay. He was a Siamese cat and he initially was called Pretty Woman because I thought he was a girl. (laughs) And so in the movie, Pretty Woman was mother wouldn't allow me to watch it. I just knew that I wanted to be on Rodeo Drive. I could see certain scenes with my mom. And so I wanted to name the cat Pretty Woman. I took the cat to the vet and the cat, the vet was like, um, I think we need to change Pretty Woman's name. And I was like, to what? And he's like, to like Pretty Boy. And I'm like, boy and I just remember laughing with him and that was like my first experience with a vet right so it was a, it was a fun experience but it wasn't the vet that I was mentoring or shadowing with um but again I pretty boy lived to be 19 wow. he taught me and my sister so much um he got so many different disease processes so I learned on him you know of how to be a vet and what not to do <laughs> for the next time um and also that I won't be my pet's doctors going forward so those were a value pretty boy taught me a yeah. lot but he was a amazing oh, I love that story pretty boy <laughs> uh what's your favorite kind of music So I was born in New York City during, um, you know, the 90s and hip hop and R&B. And so that era, anything like that is is my era. I also partied hard in the 2000s. So I would say those two decades of hip hop and R&B are like right on my Absolutely. (laughs) Which leads me to my next question. What's your go to karaoke song? Oh, you surprising me on that. Well, (laughs) But I do love Gwen Stefani's No Doubt. Um, don't speak. That, I mean, I on my own. I wouldn't need friends. I'd be on the stage doing that my, on my own. And you would bring the house down <laughs> for sure. Yes, I would try. But I, I would need my Gwen Stefani red lip for sure. She's, a, she's the red <laughs> lip queen. Definitely. Uh, what is your number one guilty pleasure? There's a lot right now. Um, right now. I'm stress eating the ice cream right now. It's my guilty pleasure. <laughs> but in general, shopping. I love shopping, which I shouldn't right now. But um, yeah, that's a guilty pleasure. But when you have children that are constantly outgrowing their sneakers, turn around, um, you're kind of shopping whether you want to or not. So yeah, what- <laughs> <laughs> I get that. What is one thing on your bucket list? I want to travel more. I the pandemic. Um, really let me see that I needed to do more. I actually went to Colombia right before the pandemic, which was the last time that I met my grandmother. Um, and I felt so peaceful to be back in the country that my father grew up in. And I remember saying like, we have to come bring my kids. So that's probably, then the pandemic happened. And now since so much loss. I want to go back with my kids. So that's would probably be the next on my bucket list. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And what is, speaking of traveling, what is your go-to airport snack? So you're starving in the airport. <laughs> what is your go-to? That, that's funny. That thing that you don't buy anywhere else. <laughs> well, I probably would say that that is, you know what? This is bad because I end up doing this. I never buy candy bars, but if I'm in the airport and especially if my flight is delayed. I'm like, the only thing that's getting me through this is like a Kit Kat or a Twix, but usually it's a Kit Kat. Um, so yeah, it's a Kit Kat bar. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm telling you, the rules in airports are just different. That's all I have you to know say. What? You're, you're, <laughs> I've made a deal with myself that 
know, if I'm going to eat at an airport, I'm okay with eating by myself in a nicer restaurant so that I can just have a better meal because I'm so over the fast food in in restaurant. I mean, I'm sorry, in the airports. So I try to make sure that if I think that I'm going to need to eat, like at that travel time, that I get there with enough time to be able to sit at a restaurant and actually have a meal. (laughs) It's not always, you know. I, it's not great getting to an airport extra early, but I also like need my not to be so anxious about, am I going to make right. it to this flight? And, so. Is my lunch going to be a Kit Kat today? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. So that's, and because I'm really trying to break my ice cream habit, I need an actual lunch and not a Kit Kat bar. I get it. Um, and my last question, if you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? I think, I mean, I think of so many things like don't don't open up all those credit cards in college, like even when they're trying to give you phone cards, like, <laughs> but I'm dating myself really bad. But I think like and not to be a slight cliche, but like don't give up and don't don't doubt yourself like you, you follow your gut like, you know what you want and just it may not happen in the time frame that you want it to be, because I think most of us are planners and perfectionists. But delay, de- delay is not denial. And just that as long as you continue to march forward and sometimes just march in place, you're doing a good job. Yeah, I love that because you know what? I know that there's people listening to this podcast that need to hear that. So I need to hear it. I need to listen yeah. to this. To my, You know, we never follow our own advice because yes. I like to. So that's what I would tell my now age self and my younger self. Yes, exactly. Amazing. Well, I couldn't be more thankful for you taking the time out from all the incredible things that you're doing to share with us and to share with our listeners. And we're just so excited to see what BlendVet has in store for the future and to just continue to help practices and make a huge difference in our industry and for all the people in it. So thank you for everything. Well, thank you for having me and letting me share my story. And I really loved your rapid fire questions. They threw me (laughs) off them. Thank you, everybody. And uh, by the way, if you know somebody that in your life is a success story in veterinary medicine, and I really mean this, it could be a kennel worker, it could be the person who cleans your hospital, Uh, it it can be the best client that comes through the door who's an animal advocate, Uh, a success story in your neighborhood. Uh, Those are the kind of stories that we're looking for. And so I don't think we're going to have any shortage uh, of uh, candidates, but I'm always interested to hear what you think of when we say who's a success in your life what's going on in their vet med mind